This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Welcome to Listen In, a bite-sized bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of bite-sized bio webinars wherever you are. Hello, this is Adam Paulson welcoming you to this bite-sized bio webinar. Today's presentation is titled 10 Common Statistical Mistakes to Watch Out for When Writing or Reviewing a Manuscript and is being presented by Dr. Jean-Jacques Aubin de Zivry from KU Leuven. Jean-Jacques is an engineer in the applied mathematics and an associate professor in the Department of Movement Sciences at KU Leuven. He obtained his PhD in Cognitive Neuroscience in 2007 from the Catholic University of Louvain. His postdoctoral research at Johns Hopkins University focused on transcranial magnetic and direct stimulation to investigate the role of the motor cortex in motor adaptation, after which he secured funding to become an independent researcher. His current project focuses on the effect of aging and neurological disease on motor control and learning using a multimodal approach. As always, we'll have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the top right panel of your screen, and I'll put them to Jean-Jacques at the end. Details of how to access the on-demand recording of this webinar will be sent to you by email shortly. So now over to you, Jean-Jacques, for the presentation. All right, thank you, Adam, for the introduction, and thank you all for joining today, uh, where I'm gonna present to you probably my most impactful paper, even though I'd like to do it to be on the actual research, but it's still a very interesting topic and dear to my heart. So this, this idea, I think, and, and the, the science of science, what is called sometimes meta-science, started in 2011 when a researcher published a paper that demonstrated that humans can actually feel the future. And this was not a study in a random journal. It was actually in one of the top journals in social psychology. And you might agree with me that we know that actually this is not possible. We cannot predict what's happening in the future. So that's why this goes a lot of waves and uh, lots of outrage because people couldn't really believe that study. So what was this study about? Let me give you an idea. So this is about a study about what is called extrasensory perception. So the idea that you can perceive things that are not immediately available in time, so that means they will happen in the future, or that are currently happening, but in a place that is far away. So you, for instance, like this person predict that somebody you know is actually falling. So how did the researcher Bem uh, studied that? Well, he did an experiment so, like the one I'm gonna present to you now. So it's a, a simple memory task. So if you want to study memory, you might give people a number of words that they have to uh, retain. And so then they will, for instance, practice a subset of the words, the one here highlighted in blue. And after practice, if you test the memory, you will see that they perform better on the ones that they have studied than on the one that they have not studied. For Bem, in the idea of extrasensory perception, he took this idea but turned it in, in a slightly different way. So there were a number of words, and you will be in the future practicing a subset of these words, but you have not practiced them yet. And this idea was to test recall performance before practice. And the idea is that if you had extrasensory perception, you would kind of feel which word you would have to practice, and that would allow you to have better recall performance on this. And I hope you agree with me that this is actually not really possible. 
So why was BEM's paper so influential and what did it ask so many questions about how we do science? Well, the paper was actually of quite high quality. There were nine experiments, each with 100 participants, which is way more than most of the studies at that time. Eight of the nine experiments showed the effect, but there was more. There was open data, which you know is pretty good, was pretty good and rare at that time. Simple me statistical methods and standard statistical practice. So you know you can really wonder what could go wrong. So you know it's really like state-of-the-art study. And what went wrong is actually that BEM made these results unreliable. How did it do so? Well, it performed some experiments like the one I explained to you, collected data, and then analyzed the results in different way until it got a significant p-value. And then it did that for each of the nine experiments that were all different, and then it published the paper. And what this shows is that this way of doing science is very easy to make our results unreliable. And so this has really caused a lot of people to think about how we are doing science in many, many aspects, but also in the statistical aspects. And so at that time, there were lots of things happening on social media. Twitter was at its best for uh, meta science at that time. And so that's where basically I learned most of the things that I'm gonna tell you today. Um, and you know, that really gave me, gave me the background knowledge to write this paper together with Tamar Makin on the 10 common statistical mistakes. So now we're gonna uh, dive into this, this paper and to do so, we're gonna have an imaginary experiment as an example. So what's our experiment about? Well, I want to test together with you guys, what is the effect of reading that paper, the 10 statistical mistakes paper, on your statistical knowledge. So am I, or am I gonna do that? Well, I'm gonna first, before having you to reading that paper, I'm gonna measure performance. So that's your statistical knowledge. And it will be somewhere. Then I'm gonna apply the intervention, which is in this case, giving you the paper to read. And then I'm gonna test your statistical knowledge, your performance again, and hopefully it's gonna be higher now. And so you will have learned you know, thanks to that paper, you will have improved your statistical knowledge. You will have a better performance. So that's the imaginary experiment we're going to talk about today to highlight the different problems that can occur when you are doing that type of experiment. And so this uh, framework, this imaginary experiment, allows us to talk about the first common statistical mistake, which is the absence of an adequate control group or control condition. So in this example here now, so far I've only talked about one group, which I will call the intervention group. That's the, the group that basically read the paper. That's the intervention. If the intervention work, then, you know, if a group does not read the paper, that paper and does something else, then the performance at the end compared to the, uh, to before, we should be different between the intervention group and the control group. But if the uh, control group, you know, is if, is if the performance is influenced by time, by repetition, the fact that you do the same test before and after, for instance, and that you learn from that, or any other uncontrolled factor, then the control group would look like much more like the intervention group. And so that shows that 
you know, all these factors are always uh, present when you do experiment. And that's why we need to a control group is to make sure that the difference that we observe between pre and post intervention is actually due to the intervention and not to something else. So the control group is very important. It should follow a protocol that is as close as possible to the intervention, but that differs from the intervention in very specific dimension. For instance, in our imaginary experiment, if I want to prove that it's really that paper that improves statistical knowledge and not anything about you know, reading about statistics in any books, I could give the statistics for dummies handbook uh, to the control group so that I can really show that this is about that paper and not about any additional statistical knowledge. So that's for the, the control group uh, condition. But this example with the control group also allows us to talk about the second common mistake, which is interpreting comparison between two effects or two groups without directly comparing them. So when you have such a design with an intervention group, a control group, and pre and post measurements compared to the, uh, with respect to the intervention, what sometimes people do is that they do a statistical test for the intervention group and they say, well, the intervention is successful because the performance has increased in post compared to, to pre, and that's basically, and that's significant. In contrast, for the control group, there is no difference between before and after. So that really shows um, that the intervention has an effect, but this is not true. What's missing from this statement is an actual comparison between the two. So we could represent, for instance, for the intervention group, we could have data like this, where you know you have this is each data point is one participant, and on average, if if this represents the difference in performance between before and after, you have a small increase in performance. That's for the intervention, and it's significant. And you could have the, the control group, which would have this distribution, you know, and you see this one is not significant if you test it against zero, which would mean no improvement. But it's clear, you know, so we are really in that case, but what it's clear is that actually if you compare the means of these two groups, they are no different. It's not that one group on average learns more than the other group. If you really compare the two groups, then you, will you would find no difference between them, or there would be no evidence that the intervention increase performance more than the control group. And this is here for means, but what you often see actually is for correlations. And there is, we talk also about that in the paper. So here you have two groups of participants that are represented by different colors. And we correlate from these two, for each of these two groups, these are, those are simulations from data, so artificial data. And we have two variables, X and Y, and we correlate them. And in group A, the black, data points, there is a significant correlation of 0.47 with a p-value under the significant threshold of 0.05. And for the red group, um, the correlation is not significant. And basically what people would write is, well, we have a correlation in one group and not in the other, but they would never compare the two. And that's even what I found Recently, in one of the papers that I was working on with one of my students, the students was writing, well, X was moderately correlated with Y in condition one. Interestingly, during condition two, this trend was no longer present. But this is exactly 
this it doesn't mean it's not because it's not significant anymore that is actually diff that the correlation is actually different between the two groups this is an illustration of that so we need to be very careful about the fact that we need to compare things directly so for instance comparing these two correlation co coefficient and not comparing the significance level we shouldn't say one is significant, the other is not significant, so those things are different. This is a clear example that this is not the case. Solutions for that is to use the right statistical model to do that, either an ANOVA if you compare means, ANCOVA if you have the, uh, continuous variables or linear mixed models and so on. So now go, let's go back to uh, our imaginary experiments uh, experiment to talk about the third common mistake, which is about inflating the units of analysis. I'm going to explain to you what that is. So imagine that we are in this scenario, we have two groups and we measure them before and after on statistical knowledge or performance. And we find that the time spent answering the questions that are used for to evaluate performance is actually correlated with the performance. And we can represent this in this graph. So here you have the time on the x-axis, you have the time spent to answer que uh, the question, to do the test, and here you have the performance on the test. And you have four different colors because you have data from pre-intervention and post-intervention for the intervention group, and you have pre and post data for the control group. So that's, there are four different colors for the t four different conditional groups. And that's actually a problem that we have these four different colors. Because what that means is that here we have 20 participants in total, 10 per group, but we have 40 points on the graph. And that's a sign that we have inflated the units of analysis. Because in a graph like that, you are never, for a correlation at least, you are never allowed to have more data points than you have participants. Because that violates one of the assumptions against uh, for the correlation, which are that each point is independent from each other, which is not the case here because those come from, uh, some of them come from the same participants. So what's the solution for that? Well, we should actually, uh, you know, either use more advanced statistical technique to, uh, to analyze the data and compute the correlation or simply average each measure uh, across pre and post for each participant. That means that for the intervention group, for each participant, we would take the mean between the, the blue point and the green point, and for the control between the gray and the black. And so we would end up with a graph like this, where now we have 20 data points and we have 20 participants. So that has solved it. So that's about the units of analysis. And why do people do that? It's because when you have more data points, it's easier to detect correlation. But you are actually violating some of the assumption behind the correlation, for instance. So it's very important to take into account the structure of the data. And that's also something that is important for the next common uh, statistical uh, mistake, which is about spurious correlation, which are due either to outlier or to the presence of different subgroups. So here in the correlation that I've represented, I still have participants from two different groups. And that's actually a problem for the correlation. Because here we simply computed a correlation and we did not take the data structure into account, the fact that there were two different groups. And sometimes when you have different groups, this is again simulated data, that's a graph that you can find in the paper. You have, if you have two groups, you might have 
you know, a very strong correlation, even though for each group separately or in the underlying uh, population, there is no correlation. So here, what's driving the significant correlation is only the fact that you have two groups. X and Y in each of these subgroups is actually not correlated because this is simulated data. So I built the data myself. So I know there is no correlation. But you can see that the presence of two subgroups actually drive a correlation. And here you might say, yeah, but this is extreme. They are actually quite separated from each other. But even if it seems continuous on the X axis or on the Y axis, you can see that even though there should be no correlation, the fact that there are two different subgroups is giving you a correlation. And that's what there should be if you, there, there was absolutely no difference between the two groups, then there's actually no significant correlation. So the presence of subgroups can create spurious correlation. This is well less known than the influence of outlier on correlation, especially on Pearson correlation, which is the one that is mostly used in the scientific papers. You can see that if you have one outlier, it really can give rise to a very strong correlation, even though, again, there shouldn't be any correlation because this is simulated data and there, should be, there shouldn't be any correlation between X and Y. Of course, the outlier, if it's less further away from the main, from most of the data points, the correlation decreases, but actually there shouldn't be any correlation. So what's the solution for either the presence of outlier or the presence of different subgroups because it makes sense you know if you have different subgroups to try to to compute a cor correlation coefficient for all the data pulled together it just means that you have to take the data structure into account that you have to account for the fact that you have different groups so robust statistical methods can be used to handle outliers and uh, things like multi-level correlations can be used to uh, take into account the fact that there are different subgroups in the data set. You can also do that with uh, linear mixed models and so on. That's more complicated. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Okay, so let's uh, go for, back to our example. So now we know we cannot do a correlation across all the, the data, so I pick only the intervention group here, and I have a correlation of R equal 0.7 with 10 people. And that will allow me to talk to you about why using small samples is often not a good idea, that we should try to increase as much as possible, as much as is doable, the size of our samples. So, you know, that happens to everybody. This is a correlation from one of my paper from 2009, where I computed a correlation on six participants, which I'm not very proud of, but that happens, you know. What's important is to improve and to understand why this is a problem now. So what's the problem with the use of small samples? Well, I'm gonna highlight here two, but there are many more than what I'm gonna uh, tell you about. The first thing is that using small sample size reduces the chance of detecting an effect. That's linked to power. So I'm gonna uh, illustrate this based again on simulated data, artificial data. So imagine that we want to detect a correlation of R equal 0.5, which is quite a big and strong correlation. And you have two different group size, either N equal 15 or N equal 28. When you have only N equal 15 and you simulate the data with R equal 0.5, what you find is that basically you only detect a significant correlation here represented by the orange bar, 50% of the time. So this is on the y-axis, the proportion of simulation 
that are that basically output a significant correlation in the in the sample of 15 points that you have randomly chosen from the population. And so there is a correlation in the underlying, underlying population. That's a correlation with R equal 0.5. But you only detect that there is a correlation 50% of the time. So your power is only 50%. While if you increase, the, you almost doubled the uh, sample size, now you get, in 80% of the cases, a significant correlation, which is good because that's, there was actually a correlation. So you should detect a correlation. The older one, the simulation represented in the blue are what is called false negative. It says that the, the, apparently there's no significant correlation even though there is in the underlying population. And using simu, uh, artificial data allows us to precisely know whether there is a correlation or not. So that was the first thing. So it reduces the power, it reduces your chance of detecting an effect if there is an effect. But it also has another a consequence, which is it inflates, inflates sorry, the size of the effect that you are detecting. So let's take the same uh, IDs. With, we have an underlying population with a correlation of 0.5, and we either sample 15 people or 28 people. And this is the distribution of correlation coefficient on the x-axis that we obtain. And the one color in blue are non-significant, the one colored in orange are significant. This is the number of correlation that we have for each bin of 0.05. So what we see is that if we take all the correlation, the whole distribution here, and we compute what's the mean correlation that is obtained, it's actually very close to 0.5, which is the correlation of the underlying population. But if we, if we only consider the ones that are significant, which are the ones that you should inter that you will interpret if you're you know doing science and writing a paper, you will not really care about a non-significant correlation. You will only talk about the ones that are significant. Well, you can see that they are all larger than the 0.5. So there's really an inflation of the effect size. And on average, if you take the average of the significant correlation, which is represented by the Dutch dashed orange line here, well, it's 0.65, um, which is much larger than 0.5, right? And some of the correlation are as, as high as 0.9, 0.85, which are really large correlations. Now, if you increase the sample size and you do the same simulations, the histograms look very different. First, you see that now the average of the significant correlation is much closer than the average that you should obtain of the value, so 0.5. So there is less inflation. Here, the sample size is still smaller, huh? and equal 28 to compute the correlation is not great. So that's why there is still some inflation. But the idea is really to show that, you know, if you have a small sample size, you will overestimate the correlation or the difference between two groups. Here, I illustrate it with correlation because it's easier to understand, but it, it works for means as well, because the the, it can only be significant if it's big enough, and it might be an overestimation of what the actual effect size is. So that's what's the solution for you know small sample size. Well, there's one straightforward solution: is to increase your sample size. And I think over the last years, in many many fields, the, the typical sample size has increased substantially. There's another thing that you can do to also uh, solve some of these problems. Uh, is to improve the accuracy of the outcome. 
that will also increase the power of your experiment. It will have less of, of an effect of the inflation of the effect size, but it will still be uh, a solution. So those two things should be done together, not one or the other. Okay, so we have talked now about the first five st common statistical mistakes uh, that we have. Now I'm gonna go back to this imaginary experiment that we were starting from with the idea that, you know, reading our paper would improve your statistical knowledge. And we're gonna talk a little bit about what I call performance. What, how do we measure that, that kind of thing? And I'm gonna do that like, like imaginary, because huh, it's not a real experiment. Also I could have, for instance, decided to assess performance with a questionnaire that, of five questions. So I ask you five questions and I'm gonna use that before and after to see how much your knowledge about statistics has improved, your performance has improved. So this could give us a graph like this. So this is the difference in score between pre and post. So the effect of the intervention of the control intervention for each of the five questions. So question one, two, three, four, five, in blue, the intervention group and in gray, the control group. And you might look at this and think, well, actually question one and five are not really good at discriminating between the two. So I'm gonna select question two, three, four to computer score. And so that will give me a measure of performance. And then I'm gonna do a statistical analysis on this new measure of performance that is based solely on question two, three, and four. And this is something you should avoid. And why is that this is what is called a circular analysis, which means that you actually defining your outcome of interest based on the data that you want to analyze statistically. And so that should be avoided. And it happens very often, you know, that people look at the data to decide how they're gonna analyze the data. And that's what is called a circular analysis. The idea, and that is, this is done really often in, in uh, machine learning, for instance, where people have a training data set for the model and a test data set, and those two are completely different. And here it's the same. You should define your outcome measure, not on the data that you want to analyze, but on other, another set of data, maybe pilot data that you have acquired and so on. That's critical because otherwise you are doing circular analysis. So in neuroscience or in bioscience, it's often not questionnaire. It's more, you know, you, you more often see traces like this where you have some variables here, it's EG data, but it doesn't really matter. You have some um, outcome that varies over time and you want to state that these two these two curves are actually different. And you look at the data and say, well, maybe I should compute my measure between 0.3 and 0.4 because that's where, you know, oops, that's where the, the, the difference is the biggest between these two conditions. But that's actually also a circular analysis because you are looking at the data and based on the data, you decide, you decide how you're gonna analyze the data and how you're gonna do the, perform the statistical test. And that should be avoided, but that happens very, very often. So that was for circular analysis. Now let's go back to our imaginary experiment. And now let's say that instead of using only one thing to assess performance, we use four different ways to assess performance. We have this questionnaire, we have a score, we have a statistic exams. Before and after we, have an, we are giving you the outcome of a statistical analysis and we ask you to interpret it and then we score that. Or we are giving you a paper and we are asking you to identify which of the 
extends common statistical mistakes are present in that paper, for instance. Um, and so you have four different outcome measures. And that will allow me to uh, illustrate the different common statistical mistakes. So let's uh, take say that we have these four different measures, and you compare performance before and after for each of them compared in the intervention group compared to the control group. And you get for the interaction effects uh, this p-value for the first one, this one for the second, and so on. So you have four different p-values that each uh, basically reflect the outcome of the statistical test to analyze this data properly. Then you look a little bit more into the data and you think, well, if I look really on the on the data of this, there's one, one participant that looks like an outlier. I'm going to exclude it. Oh, it works. No, it's significant. Great. So, well, I have two significant, but these ones are actually not really good, so I'm going to suppress them. You know, and then you end up with two, two different scores and two different p-values that are both significant. And what I just did in front of you is what is called p-hacking. I basically, based on the data that I have, I decide what I should include, what I should not include, whether I should uh, exclude an outlier and not. And if, if the excluding the outlier would not, not have made the p-value significant, then I would not have done it, and so on. So p-hacking is really driving your analysis in a way to ensure that you're going to get a significant p-value. And that should be avoided. That's called p-hacking. Um, and this is bad because actually p-hacking allows you to very easily get a significant p-value, even if there is no effect in your data set. And there was a few years ago, you know, probably 10 years now, a paper called False Positive Psychology, where to demonstrate that it's easy to get a significant p-value, the author had an undergraduate student to listen to the, a song by the Beatles called When I Am 64, and then by analyzing the data in many different ways, they were able to prove that listening to that song was making the students several years younger, which you would agree is impossible. So it's easy to get significant p-value. How can we avoid to fool ourselves? Well, I talk already about you know, defining, the, for the circular analysis, defining your outcome measure based on, a, on another uh, data set than the one you want to analyze. But also, I think pre-registration in this case is very important. So by pre-registration, I mean that you basically publish somewhere uh, available for everybody to check how you're going to analyze your data before you do. And, how, and all the rules linked to data analysis, you know, uh, how, what will be considered an outlier, what type of outcome measure are you going to use, and so on and so on. And that really is an, an idea to reduce the degrees of freedom of the researcher when he or she analyzes the data. doesn't prevent you from exploring, but then you label it differently. I think open data and open code is also helpful because that ensures transparency and people can check whether, you know, your results are actually solid or not. And replication is also a good one to avoid p-hacking because um, you know, if, you, if your first analysis is strong enough, well, it should be able, you should be able to replicate it, while most of the p-hacked results are not replicable. OK, so if we avoid p-hacking, uh, we basically keep these four p-values in the paper. And you might say, and that will allow me to talk about the common statistical mistake number eight, which is failing to correct for multiple comparisons. So what's the problem here? Well, you have done four different statistical analyses, and you see one of them is actually significant. 
And so you might say, well, you know, the fact that I have this, this test shows that reading the ten common statistical mistakes paper is actually beneficial because you improve your score on an exam. But this does not take into account the fact that you have four different outcomes. And the more outcomes you have, the higher the probability to get a significant p-value is, even if there is no effect. And so usually there are ways to uh, solve this problem, and this is called correction for multiple comparison. And so one the most the well-known correction is the Bonferroni correction, where you basically divide the significance threshold, which is usually 0.05, by the number of tests that you have performed, which is here four. And so if I compare all these p-values to the new statistical threshold, then none of these are actually significant. And so I cannot really, based on this data, claim that there is evidence that reading that paper is makes you better. This is an imaginary experiment, so I don't think it's true. Okay, I can also, based on, on this, uh, oh, yeah, I forgot this one. Okay, why is uh, failing to correct for multiple comparisons very important is because researchers have shown a few years ago that, um, you know, you can really come to absurd, absurd conclusion if you don't correct for multiple comparisons. For instance, this is a neuroimaging experiment where they, they put a dead salmon in an MRI scan scanner. And when they were not correcting for multiple comparison, they were able to prove that there was brain activity in the dead salmon, which again is impossible. So this really shows that it's very important to correct for multiple comparison in order to not fool yourself about what you are finding. Mistake number nine is about non-significant results. And that's a tricky one. So here, you know, I've just said there's no evidence that the intervention works, but can I really conclude that there is no effect, that the intervention doesn't work? You know, and I might even go further and say, well, those ones, they are borderline, so I don't know, but this one is actually really, really far from the significance threshold. Does that mean that reading the 10 common statistical mistake paper does not improve your performance, your ability to interpret, interpret the result of a statistical analysis? And uh, the, the answer is probably no. I certainly no. Because you cannot interpret a non-significant p-value as the absence of an effect. But often, this is, this is done in a different way. So if we go back to our imaginary experiment, what people often do is that they do this. They have a baseline condition or you know, some tests before the intervention. And they will say, well, I have this parameter. And it's not significant between the, the two groups. So I don't need to account for it. So they then focus only on what happened after the intervention. And they just do, like here, it would do a t-test to compare the two without comparing them. But that's basically you know, failing to acknowledge that being not significant does not mean that there's no effect. You know, it means that you don't have enough power to detect an effect, that there is no evidence here that there is an effect. It doesn't mean that they are not different. The means between the two groups can still be different, and you need to account for that. So always be careful about saying, oh, there was no difference in baseline because the p-value was non-significant. This is not true. A non-significant p-value only means 
that there is no evidence for an effect in the data set that you have. It doesn't mean that there is no effect at the, for the underlying population. How do we, you know, what's the solution for interpret for avoiding overinterpreting non-significant results? That's a tricky one. I think the question to ask yourself when you see a non-significant result is, what if I had a thousand data points in my data set? Would I still feel that you know there is no statistical difference? And often, uh, when I ask that to my students, say, "Well, no, you are right. Maybe there is a difference." So, okay, so we need to interpret that. There are ways also to uh, tackle um, non-significant results. Some of them are called the equivalent tests, which is related to minimum effect size of interest. And Daniel Lacken has, has written about those, if you're interested in. Some people use bias factor, which I don't have the time to go into. But so there are ways to talk about that. But be careful, do not interpret a non-significant p-value as a proof that there is no effect. You just don't have enough evidence that there is an effect. And um, we now go to the last uh, statistical mistake, which is about correlation and uh, causation. Um, and so for that, I go back to the correlation that we had before. I remove one of the two groups. So we have only one group here. The, we have the time spent answering the uh, statistical test performance and the performance measure here. And you might interpret this as the fact that spending more time answering the statistical questions will increase your performance. They might think, well, yes, of course, you know, if I'm more conscientious, spend more time really trying to answer properly, you know, that will that can only increase my performance. But this is actually a causal stat statement, and we can never infer causation from correlation. Why? For three different reasons, at least three different reasons, uh, even more. First, maybe the, we, there is a variable that we have omitted. So imagine that actually prior statistical knowledge varies across your participant, and actually that influences both the performance because of course, if you know more in advance, you will have better performance. And also the time spent, maybe because either you are going faster answering the question, or you will be able to give more detail and, and um, spend more time answering the question. So a third, there is a third variable that could explain this relationship. And so that's one reason why there's no, we cannot infer causation. Another one is that maybe it's the opposite. Amazing. Maybe if you know more about statistics, you will spend more time writing the answer because you can give more details uh, for your answer. That's one possibility. Or there is a measurement error. So maybe you know students are actually afraid to leave the room quickly because they don't want to appear failing at the statistical test in front of other students. I mean, I often see that of the exam. The students who stay the two hours of the exam, actually, they haven't written anything on the, on the exam because they don't know anything. And so in that case, you know, again, there's a, there would be no link between time spent and performance. Um, so those are three reasons, and there are more, why correlation and causation should not be linked, and why from a correlation you can never infer causation. Um, and again, this is a statement from a paper that I was working on with the, the same student as earlier. It was from the same paper, actually. And she wrote, well, X is negatively correlated with Y, and she gives the correlation, and then she, it appeared that higher level of X lead to better performance in Y. And again, this, the second one, this is a causal statement. We have no idea. We just know that there is an association between X and Y. We don't know whether higher, higher level of X lead to better performance in Y. So I'm done with the 
10 statistical mistakes. Now we've given you an overview of what the mistakes are, uh, some of the solutions. So what's, what are the there are solutions, mistake per mistake, of course, but I think there are also more global solutions that we should think of. And for me, the solutions lies in better tie, more transparency, more better incentives, and more education. Transparency, I think, is very important. I've, I've mentioned it in the in the talk as well. And I think because if you want to be a reliable researcher, you should be transparent about your process. That really increases trust among researchers. And actually, the person that will benefit the most from it is you in 10 years. And you know, I'm a strong believer that open science in general, sharing your data, your code, not only the PDF of your paper helps you becoming a better scientist and paying attention to all the mistakes that I've mentioned today. The incentives more uh, tricky to answer. Just want to say that, for instance, piacking the, this this really willingness to get a significant result because that will allow you to publish better. This is really because the incentives of science. You know, you need more paper, more citation, papers in higher journal, and so on they are actually not aligned with good science. And so pay attention to you know, what is good science, what are you striving for? That's important. And the last one is education, where you know, I think you need, everybody needs that does research needs to try to learn more about um, statistics in general and how to do science uh, as well. There's a very good course. Uh, that is improving your statistical inference by Daniel Lackens uh, that I recommend to you. And I, we hope with our paper to have contributed to that. So better tie is important. And just this morning I was reading this, somebody talking about replication crisis in science. So there's this unreliability of results. And she was really saying, you know, we should have better training, which is better education, slower and more careful science. I think that's really, uh, what we need to focus on. So your future selves, thanks you for uh, listening to this talk and I thank you as well. And I'm open to answer any question um, if you have some. Well, thanks, Jean-Jacques. That was an excellent presentation. Uh, we do have a few questions from the audience. Uh, if anyone, anyone else has a question, please uh, feel free to post it into the question box, which appears on the top right panel of your screen. Uh, right, so let's uh, let's dive in. Uh, first of all, uh, Jean-Jacques, uh, what is the most common mistake among the ten? Yeah, so I think the most common mistake is the uh, wrong interpretation of the non-significant p-values, um, and this is also something that people really struggle with because they never know what to do when they have a. Um, a negative, uh, non-significant p-value. And uh, many, many people interpret that as the fact that there's no effect. And, and that's something that, that is not true. There is no simply no evidence with the, in the data set that there is an effect. It doesn't mean that there is no effect. Mm -hmm. OK. Uh, so got a couple of questions from uh, one of the audience members. So I'll, I'll just do them. Uh, do them back to back if you don't mind. So the first was, what is the minimal sample size if you only compare one treatment and one control? Well, that's impossible to say like this. I think it's too general. It really depends on your experiments, on how accurate your the outcomes are. Uh, so there's something about precision uh, and the accuracy of the outcome. It really varies. I mean, sometimes 
uh, if you have a very accurate measure uh, that is really able to distinguish any progress made or any difference uh, achieved by the treatment, then you know a sample size of five could be enough to really detect reliably a difference if the treatment works 100% of the time. Now it depends on the sample size, on, on the effect size of the treatment, the variability of your measurement, and so on. So it's it's impossible to answer like that. Okay, thank you. So she does follow up to say we usually use the Federer formula to calculate sample size. Is it proper or is there another formula that you could suggest or that you're aware of? Do you know this one? No, I don't know what the Federer formula is, uh, so it's difficult to answer. I mean, I think computing sample size in advance is very complicated uh, because we never know what the effect size is that we are looking for. Um, Daniel Lackens, again, that I referred to in the talk, has uh, written a paper about how to justify sample size. And there, I think what's interesting is not to think about what is the effect size that I'm uh, expecting, is to think is what is the minimal effect size that I would like to detect. And so it's shifting from, you know, what do I expect to, well, what would I, would I be interested in, actually? If the effect size is very tiny, Am I interested in that effect? Maybe not. Okay, thank you. So uh, the next question, uh, how can one detect circular analysis and how can you prevent this mistake? So you, you, you did go into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, I think it's difficult to detect in some other people's work because you have to know how did they, uh, you know, come to that measure that they are using to do the statistical analysis. I think there are a few signs about that, you know. I mean, it's often more or less describing the methods and a sign of circular analysis, for instance, if people keep changing their measure from paper to paper. So there's no reason if you have a, you study the same process just in different conditions, different experiment, there's no reason to change the way you quantify that data. You know, you shouldn't be really flexible about how you measure what you are interested in. And if it keeps varying from measure for measure, it means that it's both a sign of p-hacking and of circular analysis, it means that people are looking at the data, trying to get the best measure to really increase the difference. Uh, and so that's a sign of circular analysis. Okay, thank you. Uh, so which of the, of the 10 mistakes is the most difficult to avoid? Yeah, uh, I think, Correlation and causation is a difficult one to avoid because people really kind of naturally try to, from a correlation, infer a causation. And that's something that is very difficult to learn from and to, to avoid. I think uh, that's uh, maybe not the, uh, the most present, but that's something, you know, if you don't really think about it, sometimes the statement is not really, it's not really causally written, but it implies causation. And that's what is difficult. Okay, uh, so the, the next question then, um, in the case of animal research, people try to minimize the number of animals being used. Uh, how can people doing animal research increase their sample size then? Yeah, so here it's always a trade-off, I think, and that's, that's a, a mix of ethics and statistics. What, I'm, uh, what I believe is that if you don't have enough animals in your study, then your study is not really informative either because you never know whether the effect that you have found is actually real or whether you've missed an effect and so on. So I think ideally when you have uh, the different 
when you do animal research that you would try to replicate. Maybe you cannot really increase your sample size as much, but I believe it's still possible to do sometimes slightly better than what is currently done. But you also then try, when you do an experiment in animal, try also to reproduce your previous results. Then you are basically, by replicating your result from one experiment and partially to another, the next experiment, just adding something and so on, I think you can get to, you know, the same effect as increasing your sample size, making sure that you have a, a good estimate of the reliability of the results that you have achieved. Okay, uh, right, I think we've got time for one more question then. Uh, if anyone else has a question in the meantime, please uh, pop a qu question into the, the, the question box. So Jean-Jacques, you mentioned open science as a potential solution. Uh, do you want to comment a bit more about this and how it can really help? Yeah, so I think for me, the biggest mistake of how we do science now is that we do an experiment, it takes years, we collect lots of data, we do lots of analysis, and at the end, we put everything in a PDF. And a PDF is not something that is really useful for scientists. We need data, we need code, we need to be able to go and look, you know, how was this research done? Can I trust it? You know, especially if you want to you know, replicate the results of somebody else, you need to more than, the, there's often not enough information in the PDF, but if you have access to the data, if you have access to the analysis, you can for yourself decide, well, do I really believe this? Am I, you know, was this done correctly? Or should I do it in another way? How can I really build on that? I think that's why open science is so important, is that then people, when they want to build further on somebody else's work, or even of your own work, you know, you can, you can go back, look really at the details, the type of how the data was looking at, you know, do you have the same type of data that the other person, same type of variability across participants or across animals, whatever, and you can have a better feeling about, you know, whether the, the, this is a true uh, result or not. So I think that's really the future and we need to work on that. Okay. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Uh, so that uh, brings us to the end of today's webinar. For those of you asking, details uh, on how to access the on-demand recording of this webinar will be sent to you by email shortly. Uh, Jean-Jacques, thanks again. That uh, was a very illuminating presence and a, a, a presentation um, and, and a great discussion. And um, finally, thanks to you, the audience, uh, for taking the time to attend and listen in. So until next time, good luck with your research and goodbye from all of us at Bitesize Bio. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Listen In from Bitesize Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar or to browse the Listen In series, please see the episode description for links. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.